Do we have what it takes to outwit the Neo Templars? Well, let's find out with Broken Sword this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 62 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Well, it's kind of uh, mid mid to end of December, so uh, the holidays are here. Things are crazy busy, and uh, I'm really glad I was able to uh, to find some time to, uh, to sit down here and do a show, because uh, this is a big one. This is an exciting one. Uh, one that you guys have been uh, requesting for quite a while, and I was fine. I finally broke down and uh, and did it. So uh, you know what? We got a lot to say here. We got a lot of clips to play. We got emails. We got voicemails. We got everything. So uh, let's get right to it. Don't need to talk about the weather. You know what? It's December. What do you think? It's cold. <laughs> so a uh, couple of emails to start. Now we have one from Alan, and he writes, "Hi, Joe." Since you are asking for submissions, here's a quick retro gaming podcast list. And he's got quite the list here. Uh, Watch Out for Fireballs, the Retro Gaming Roundup, which is uh, kind of retro gaming in general. You Don't Know Flack, which has to do with retro gaming, retro computing, computing, and uh, 80s retro kind of in uh, in general. Uh, Retro Bits, which is retro computing general with games. Unfortunately, they seem to have pod faded, but uh, you can go and listen to the existing episodes. W1S1, which is World 1 Stage 1. They talk about things that are other than games now, but they used to talk about games. Uh, No Quarter, which is all about arcade games. Not something that I was huge into, but uh, some of you may be. IGN Retro City, which is kind of a big guy. Uh, Something called the UMB Cast, which uh, he says has an odd name, and I tend to agree. Some jerk does it. Uh, the DOS Nostalgia Podcast, which I've talked about before with uh, with Anatoly. Three Moves Ahead, which is a strategy general type uh, stuff, including game retrospectives. Tad Pog, Tyler and Dave play old games. Uh, Wired's Game Life and the same coin. He continues, I don't remember what episode you asked, but it was a few back. I don't remember either. <laughs> Uh, I do have comments on some past episodes, but I'm not good at getting around to email or social media when it comes to podcasts, though I listen to many. Maybe I'll get my notes into some emails later if you don't mind references to older episode topics. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks, Alan. Well, thank you, Alan. And of course, you know, if any of you guys have anything to say about uh, about older episodes, yeah, feel free to drop me a line. I mean... You know, trust me, the games have been around for 20 years. They're not going anywhere. So, uh, you know, if you just played through Gabriel Knight or, you know, Wing Commander or something like that from, you know, one of the earlier episodes, drop me a line. Hey, I I do the show because I love these games and I love talking about them. So I won't turn down an email. Uh, Thank you so much for that list. There's a lot of stuff there. Uh, Maybe I'll post these all in the show notes. Maybe I won't. I don't know. Uh, I'll see how I feel later. But uh, great list, great list. And uh, I think the only one I've listened to on there is uh, is Das Nostalgia. So there's there's a lot for me uh, on there as well. So thank you, Alan. Next, we have an email from Parker. And he writes, hey again, Joe. I don't have much to say about this week's games, 
as I am far too young to have played it. However, I did want to make a suggestion for a game. The game is named Constructor, and uh, it is a funny construction management game similar to SimCity, only even more ridiculous. I think you might enjoy it. Thanks for making such a great show, and I hope you make many more. Parker. Well, thank you, Parker. And, um, you know, I looked up Constructor. I haven't played it myself, but uh, I looked it up, and it does it does look like a lot of fun. You know, it's pretty. I make it pretty clear on uh, on this show that, you know, I like these kind of city building management type games like SimCity. And, you know, if you can make one that has a little more humor, I think over the years, SimCity has gotten a bit more tongue in cheek, a bit more humorous. The, the first one, even SimCity 2000, were still pretty serious. But as time went on, I think especially in SimCity 4, there was a bit more humor, a bit more, you know, puns in the names of buildings and and stuff like that. But uh, Constructor looks pretty cool. I checked it out on Steam. Uh, I think you can buy it there. I don't think you get it on GOG, but uh, cool game. I actually also replied back to Parker and uh, pointed at, pointed out Kerbal Space Program to him. I don't know if I've talked to you guys about Kerbal Space Program, but uh, obviously not a DOS game or a pre-Windows XP game, but uh, game that I played quite a lot of uh, a while ago, and uh, they've actually just gone into beta, like their first official beta. Before that, they were in pre-release alpha kind of uh, Steam, whatever it's called, early access mode. But, uh, you know, the game was pretty complete. Like, the features they put out there, they mostly worked. So it wasn't like this broken thing. And, you know, Kerbal Space Program, super awesome. You you know, you build rockets, you fire them into space, and there's, you know, physics, and you have to do proper orbits. And, you know, it's obviously simplified to an extent, but but really, really cool. Different parts, different purposes, docking collars and RCS thrusters. And, you know, if you're into the space program at all, Check out Kerbal Space Program, and if you're into city building, check out Constructor. So thank you, Parker. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, let's get right into things here. Uh, This time around, I'm hitting a very interesting set of games. I will be discussing the five titles in the Broken Sword series. Uh, The games were generally developed by Revolution Software and published by a few different publishers, uh, including Virgin Interactive, THQ, and even Revolution itself. Uh, The first game in the series is named Broken Sword, The Shadow of the Templars, and originally released back in the year 1996. So let's talk genre like we usually do, uh, as we've discussed many, many times before, uh, the games in the Broken Sword series are mostly considered to be adventure games. Uh, You'll see why I say mostly a bit later on, but for now, let's go over our standard definition of adventure games. Uh, An adventure game places you in control of one or many protagonists who early on in the game are issued a quest. Uh, This can be via an explicit event or an explicit encounter, or uh, a quest can emerge organically kind of throughout the story, just kind of through the world, through the situation. Uh, Once you embark on this quest, you and your character are faced with a variety of challenges in the form of puzzles. Now, puzzles can take many, many forms. Uh, You know, they can range from standard fetch quests, you know, go get me four boar's heads, uh, to puzzles involving logic, mathematics, knowledge of history, or the game world itself. And sometimes, you know, the solutions to puzzles just don't make any sense at all. I was having a really great talk uh, with with Trolls and Frederick Olson on their Backseat Designers podcast just yesterday, actually about moon logic so you know just kind of having uh, puzzle solutions that are that are just completely out there i think i brought up the uh my example was the rumpelstiltskin puzzle in uh in king's quest 
you know, just where it's it's so out there and you basically have to read the designer's mind to figure out what the, the intended solution was. And, you know, hopefully there aren't too many of those in, in games, but uh, a lot of adventure games do have one or two. Uh, aside from puzzles, you gather information from the world around you via you know, observation, picking up and examining items, and uh, interacting with other game characters. Eventually, though, the story comes to a conclusion. The quest is resolved, uh, at times even with multiple outcomes, depending on how you played the game. And uh, your experience is done, at least until next time you want to play. So since we are talking about an adventure game, we obviously can't help but discuss the story. Paris in the fall, the last months of the year and the end of the millennium. The city holds many memories for me, of cafes, of music, of love, and of death. So speaking there is our main character and the de facto hero of the Broken Sword series, George Stobart. Now, he's an American tourist from California who's spending some time in Paris. Uh, The voiceover you just heard plays over a black screen, which then resolves into an image of a raven, or maybe it's just a crow, a black bird, I guess then, um, flying across the skyline of Paris with the Eiffel Tower prominent in the background. Now, after a credit sequence, the bird flies down to a streetside cafe, a very generic Parisian streetside cafe. Uh, here we see George, blonde haired and clad in jeans, a white t shirt, and a green jacket. Uh, he's being served coffee by, shall we say, a an attractive French waitress. Um, he looks like he's having a quiet day in the city and appears to be enjoying himself, though they have, that might have a bit more to do with the waitress than uh, than with anything else. Now, one thing I have to say right here, I don't usually talk about the way things look in the, uh, you know, in the story section, but uh, I have to bring it up here only because it does speak to how you picture things. Now, the art in this game is very high quality, as is the animation. It's very reminiscent of Disney's style, at least to my untrained eye. So with this in mind, kind of a semi-realistic Disney style aesthetic to it, you know, let's, let's move on. So the waitress places George's cafe au lait on the bistro table. He's sitting, you know, outside of the cafe. And uh, at the same time, an older man carrying a briefcase, wearing an overcoat and a hat, bumps into the waitress. He then excuses himself, tips his hat because, you know, she's pretty. And uh, he enters the cafe. George observes the interaction until he's annoyed by some balloons entering his sight line and kind of hitting him in the head. He pops one of them with a toothpick he has. Uh, which reveals their wielder, a circus clown, complete with makeup, oversized pants, red hair, little hat, and floppy shoes. He also appears to be playing an accordion. Odd, but eh, it's Paris, so the French kind of have things for clowns. So the clown also enters the cafe, much to George's bewilderment. Uh, We then cut to inside and see the old man from before sitting at the bar. Uh, We also see his briefcase on the stool next to him. Now the clown's arms come into the frame, snatch the briefcase, and replace it with the accordion, somewhat Indiana Jones kind of taking the idol 
style. So back to outside, George observes the clown running from the cafe and into a nearby alley with the briefcase in his hand. Uh, before he can make anything of the situation, we cut back inside. Uh, the accordion that the, the clown uh, left in place appears to be beeping. As you may have already guessed, after a few beeps, it explodes, trashing the cafe and sending George flying. Now, he ends up on the ground underneath the fabric from either the cafe's awning or the uh, umbrella sitting near his table. I think it's the umbrella. Uh, either way, he gets up, brushes himself off, and appears to be unharmed. Uh, it appears the fabric has shielded him from the worst of the blast and also probably his distance from, uh, from the explosion. The cafe, on the other hand, looks, well, like a bomb went off inside it. Uh, and this is where the game begins. Now, what begins with George as concern for the condition of the attractive waitress uh, and curiosity about the trench-coated man uh, leads us on an adventure across history and Europe where George will find danger, intrigue, and love. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So, since this is where we start playing the game, this is probably where we should start talking about gameplay. Now, from a gameplay perspective, there isn't a ton here that we haven't seen before. This is a two-click interface adventure game. A right-click generally causes George to look at an object or person to kind of examine it. Left-click will perform some other default action, which is represented by an icon. Uh, there's no Sierra-style icon bar, no LucasArts-style verb list or action coin. It's just two clicks and a context-sensitive icon. So if you're not hovering on anything, clicking will just make George walk. Actually, clicking either button will just make George walk. Uh, a magnifying glass will allow for closer examination of an object. Now, this is more in-depth than the simple right-click look. You actually kind of look at it closely and do, you know, sleuthy type stuff. Uh, gears will make George use an item in whichever way he kind of sees fit. Pinching fingers will make George pick up an object. An open mouth will make him talk. And finally, there's some additional movement commands. A pointing finger will cause George to exit the scene in the indicated direction, and a beckoning hand, you guys can't see, but I'm beckoning my hand. It's very fancy. Uh, a beckoning hand, sorry, I'm a little punchy tonight. Uh, a beckoning hand will move George in a direction to reveal off-screen areas that are you know, in the same scene. So this, the screen will scroll a little bit, and uh, you'll move around in the same scene. So, controls aside, let's, uh, let's roll through a scene or two of gameplay, uh, not only to illustrate this UI in action, because frankly it's pretty straightforward, but also to get a feel for the game world. So obviously, if you're in an explosion, the first thing to do is to enter the cafe and make sure everybody's okay. Well, turns out that somebody isn't. On checking the older man, it appears to your, again, untrained eye that, uh, that he's dead. After searching his pockets, you turn up nothing. This guy's an enigma, and knowing something about him would probably be helpful, considering he seemed to be the target of uh, this clown attack. The only other notable things in the room are an intact bottle of brandy on the bar and the pretty waitress sprawled on the ground on the other side of the room. Uh, next thing, we should probably see if she's okay. The pretty young waitress was unconscious. Oh, my head. Never again. How much vodka did I drink? Oh, no, don't tell me. What is your name, Shelley? George Stobart, ma'am. Oh, American. She asked the question quite innocently, but I could sense her reserve. It was something which seemed to afflict all Europeans. You look like you could use a little help. I could use a little drink. I feel sick, dizzy, 
and bruised. I don't even remember the party. Just relax and take it easy. You've been knocked out. You don't say. What happened? There's been an explosion. You should try not to move. Are you a doctor? Yes, I am. I studied under Dr. Benton. Who is he? Only one of the most brilliant medical minds on this planet. He taught me everything I know about medicine. Can you remember anything at all? No. I need a drink. Pour me a brandy. You could be in shock. No alcohol. Okay, you're the doctor. What about the old man? Is he dead? Yes, he is. Oh, mon dieu. So it turns out she's okay, but, uh, you know, she's in a little bit of shock. Now, this conversation reveals another gameplay element. You get choices in conversation, and they affect things in the game. Now, when the waitress asked if George was a doctor, he has the option of telling the truth and saying, no, I'm just some guy, or lying and saying yes. Um, and obviously that affects the way she interacts with you. After a bit more searching, uh, you figure there isn't anything else here, so you head away from the cafe. Now, frankly, at this point, I find it odd that, you know, thus far, there's nobody around. You know, no emergency services, no crowd forming, even a worker just up the street just continues digging a hole. Hey, a cafe blew up. Whatever, it's Paris. Well, after we walk away a bit, we finally encounter the police. Uh, a sergeant who we'll soon learn is named Moo stops us at gunpoint. He's called off by his superior, whose name we will also soon learn is Inspector Rosso. Please, hold it right there. Oh, don't shoot. I'm innocent. I'm an American. Can't make up your mind, huh? I demand to see the American consul. Drop your weapons and get down on the ground. Put that thing away, Sergeant Moo. I apologize, monsieur, but I cannot permit you to leave. Am I under arrest? Ah, uh, no, I would simply like to ask you some questions. En avant, to the café, marche. What a mess. This bombing is an outrage, is it not? Stop that, monsieur. Stop holding your breath at once. Has it occurred to you that he may be dead, Moo? Oui, monsieur, but I prefer to look on the bright side. Besides, I recall a case where the killer escaped by feigning death. However, in this case, the man is quite dead. Clearly, the killer knew of his presence and... How many times have I warned you about premature extrapolation? All we know is that he is dead. It seemed reasonable to assume... A great detective assumes nothing. Take Maigret, for instance. But, but he was a fictitious character, monsieur. Why, he was no more real than Poirot or Tintin. That's different, Moo. They were comedy Belgians. Anyway, it is unlikely that even you will learn much from talking to the dead. Examine the girl and take her statement. If you can. So there's more to that whole scene, but I think that kind of gives you the idea. You know, here we can see that the game does have a bit of a sense of humor. Uh, you know, the cops are really here for some comedy relief. Uh, also, 
if you were paying attention, actually, I don't know if I played that part, but uh, but we can see that our decision in the first conversation with the waitress, actually, I didn't play that part, but coming up next, you'd see that uh, our our decision in the first conversation with the waitress has carried over. I said I was a doctor, and now the police also believe I am. Basically, uh, she says, oh, the doctor said I might be in shock. And they're like, oh, you're a doctor. And for the rest of the game, uh, they call me Dr. Stobart. And now if I said I wasn't a doctor, they'd simply refer to me as Mr. Stobart and, you know, no harm done. But it's, it's, it's a nice little detail there where, you know, your, your choices matter. So walking outside after our, uh, you know, interrogation by the police who start going on about, you know, power of the mind and psychic investigation and all this crazy stuff, uh, we encounter a woman taking photos. Uh, it turns out her name is Nicole Collard a photojournalist currently working for La Liberté, which I will imagine is a a local uh, Parisian newspaper. She seems to know a little bit more about this situation than we do. Hi, my name's George Stobart. Oh, an American by the sound of it. Yeah, that's right, on holiday in Paris. Some holiday, huh? You were here when the bomb went off? Sure was. Sat right out front of the cafe. Did you notice a middle-aged man, maybe 60, with an hat and overcoat? I couldn't believe it. She hadn't even asked how I was feeling. Yeah, he went inside just before the bomb exploded. You weren't related to him, were you? Oh no, nothing like that. I am Nicole Collard from La Liberté. What's that, some kind of nightclub? Uh, no, it is a newspaper. You're a reporter? I'm a freelance photojournalist. Say, you can interview me about the bombing. You know, an eyewitness account. Minutes after the outrage that shook the whole of Paris, you know, real-life drama, human interest, that kind of stuff. I'll just stick to the facts, thank you. Did you see who planted the bomb? I know it sounds crazy, but he was dressed like a clown. Oh, God. It's him again. Have you met the clown before? It's a long story. I have plenty of time. I don't. You speak very good English for a French girl. Thanks. You speak very good English from America. Do you know a police officer called Rosso? Rosso? A pass have a knack of crossing. If I didn't know better, I'd say it was deliberate. Have you seen Rosso? Is he here? He's inside, attempting to question a witness with his psychic powers. What? That guy is weird. Yeah. Who's the guy you were supposed to meet? His name was Planter. I didn't know him, but he called me last night. He said he had a story which would interest me. He asked me to meet him at the cafe. I guess I'll never know what he wanted to tell me. Well, not unless you have Rosso's gift for psychic interrogation. Why won't you tell me about this clown? Why do you want to get involved? Because he almost killed me. Isn't that reason enough? I guess so. Listen, I'll give you my phone number. You help me with my story, and I'll let you in on what I know. And let's get one thing straight right now. This is strictly business. Okay, it's a deal. I have to go develop these pictures. Bientôt, monsieur. Fine, I'll, uh, see you soon. So as the game progressive, Nicole, or Nico, as we soon learn she likes to be called, uh, becomes your main sidekick. Uh, she does research, provides you with a base of operations, and, well, let's just say the strictly business condition that she just mentioned eventually falls away. Uh, so your adventure takes you and occasionally Nico across Europe as uh, you soon discover the case contained a manuscript 
related to the Knights Templar, and the quest begins to find the fabled Sword of Baphomet. Uh, George and Nico aren't alone, though. The clown, a pair of thugs, and a group claiming to represent the Knights Templar, known as the Neo-Templars, are all after it, and the game ends in a final confrontation between all involved parties. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. Since we're into 1996, we're getting into some more modern systems than I've been talking about as of late. Uh, It seems the past few shows I've been kind of back in the 80s, so it's a bit of a nice change to jump up into the mid-90s here. So to run Broken Sword, Shadow of the Templars, you need at least a 486DX2 66MHz, a sound card, a mouse, and a 2X or double speed CD-ROM drive. Graphically, you needed a video card that was VESA 2.0 compatible, which meant it could display a resolution of up to 640 by 480 SVGA at 256 colors. Now, it was this requirement that allowed the game's animation to look as great as it did. Now, that was to run the game at all. To run the game well, Revolution recommended a Pentium and a 4X CD-ROM over, the, over and above the base requirements. Also, being that we were into the days of Windows 95, the game ran both under DOS and native uh, Windows versions. Now, underneath the pretty visuals and the great music, the game ran on Revolution's Virtual Theater engine. Uh, This is the same engine that powered Revolution's previous games, Lure of the Temptress and Beneath a Steel Sky. I talked quite a bit about this engine back in the Beneath a Steel Sky episode. Uh, The first two Broken Sword games used an upgraded version of this engine, allowing for digital music and higher-res graphics. Also, the fact that characters occupied space and couldn't simply be walked through, which was a unique feature of the Virtual Theater engine, was actually disabled for this game. Yeah, it made the world seem more real, but it was determined by management or whatever that, uh, that having this feature in there detracted from the flow of gameplay, especially when an NPC would block a door and you know not get out of the way. Now, the music in the game was composed by Australian-born composer Barrington Faylong. I believe that's how you say his name. Uh, Faylong was born in 1954 and grew up outside of Sydney, Australia. Initially, he began playing the R&B guitar as a child, or playing R&B guitar, not the R&B guitar. He began playing the guitar in an R&B style. But uh, in his late teens, he discovered the works of Johann Sebastian Bach, which drew him toward more classical compositions. In 1972, he moved across the world, virtually, to England, where he attended the Royal College of Music, where he stuttered, stuttered, studied under classical guitarist Julian Bream and one of my favorite, and I think a lot of people's favorite, modern composers, uh, John Williams. 
He went on to compose and arrange countless ballets and score many films and television shows, including uh, Inspector Morse, a British crime drama that ran from 1987 to the year 2000. Uh, It was based on this work that he was hired on to score Broken Sword. Uh, The first two games, plus Revolutions in Cold Blood, are his only video game credits. Now, the music in this game is great, at times even to the detriment of the action. I mean, one of the only real technical issues I ran into playing this game was the fact that the default volume for the music at times overpowers the sound and dialogue so that you can't actually hear what's being said. Though, uh, given the quality of some of the voice acting, as you may have heard, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, Broken Sword is the third adventure game from Revolution Software. Again, I talked a lot about the origins of the company back in episode 47, all about Beneath a Steel Sky. Uh, There I talked about how Charles Cecil, 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 I think I did the same thing in that episode. Let's say Charles Cecil. Uh the lead designer and director of Broken Sword, met Richard Turner and started working for him while he was still in uh, in university. They made quite a few popular games for the ZX Spectrum, the Sinclair, and the Amstrad computers uh, with their company called Arctic Software. When Arctic folded, Cecil took a designer that he had met at the company named Tony Warner, and they started a company uh, for one year but then uh, Cecil was hired on at U.S. Gold as their dev manager, sorry, development manager. Uh, as he soon left that position for a job at Activision. Now here, he encountered Noreen Carmody, Activision's general manager. Now after some time, things at Activision got tough, so Cecil, or Cecil, Cecil? Cecil. I'll say Cecil. <laughs> I can't figure out how to say, pronounce his name. Cecil was asked if he could uh, go part-time. He agreed with the provision that uh, he'd be allowed to form his own game studio on the side. This is all stuff I talked about in that Beneath the Steel Sky episode. So along with his former co-worker, Tony Warner, a new programmer that uh, Warner brought along named David Sykes, and his now girlfriend, Noreen Carmody, Revolution Software was founded on March 3rd, 1990. Uh, Revolution's design philosophy was one of the middle ground. Now, they wanted to make adventure games, but they didn't want them to be as serious or infuriating as Sierra's, nor as off-the-wall and zany as LucasArts. Uh, They wanted a game that had an interesting and complex story, but also one that didn't take itself too seriously. And they achieved this with their first two games, Lure of the Temptress and Beneath Steel Sky. Uh, They were also able to create a very nice game engine, as we already discussed, called Virtual Theater. You know, with the success of Lure of the Temperatures and Beneath the Steel Sky, Cecil was trying to figure out what to do next. Well, he had a scenario kind of in his back pocket that he'd been working on here and there uh, since 1992 that might fit the bill. So back then, you know, after a visit to Paris and a reading of the book The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, Cecil was convinced that a game about the Knights Templar would, would be pretty compelling. So Cecil, Dave Cummins, who you'll remember as uh, the writer on Beneath the Steel Sky, and Jonathan L. Howard all began work on fleshing out this Knights Templar story, in addition to, you know, all the other stuff that went along with designing a game. In fact, to up their game from Temptress and Beneath the Steel Sky, 
Uh, Cecil and Cummins actually attended a film writing course. They really wanted this game to be cinematic. So the game script was read over and commented on by a senior BBC scriptwriter. Suffice it to say, they did a lot of work to make sure that this game's writing was up to snuff. So the goal of this game, a bit unlike Revolution's previous two games, or at least the goal of this game in Charles Cecil's mind, was to trend a bit more to the serious side of things. Now, on their last project, Beneath a Steel Sky, Cecil and Dave Cummins had gotten into quite a few disagreements on this point. Cecil wanted the game to be deeper and more complex, but uh, Cummins, you know, wanted the game to be lighter and, and more humorous. And like with Beneath a Steel Sky, I'm not sure that, uh, that Cecil completely won out on this point. Yes, the game story is complex, and yes, there are certainly serious undertones, but, uh, you know, there's also quite a bit of humor, sarcasm from George. I mean, he's, he's cuttingly sarcastic at times. Uh, there's slapstick from the police. And there's, there, there's a lot of jokes and, you know, innuendo and stuff throughout this game. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting how Cecil and his team designed their games. While many designers kind of do what I'm about to talk about by accident, the Revolution team seemed very deliberate about it. You know, they would look at adventure games that were popular, adventure games that they liked playing, and they'd take the general formula that they offered, and then they would change things about them that they didn't like. Now, for Lord of the Temptress, you know, they didn't like that in other games like King's Quest and stuff like that, uh, that NPCs would just kind of stand in one place. And, you know, you would go to them and they would talk to you and then you'd leave and they'd still stand in one place. In real life, people don't do that. So they made the NPCs move around. For Broken Sword... Uh, they didn't like how most games that offered dialogue options, you know, like Monkey Island and, you know, Sierra Games, uh, they, would, they didn't like the fact that they would write out what your character was going to say. So instead, they displayed dialogue options as, as icons. If you want to talk about the clown, there's going to be an icon of a clown. This way, you could decide what to ask about, but George was going to ask about it in his own way. I mean, a lot of other games do that these days, but this was pretty unique at the time. And, you know, I think this approach that they took really does come across, and, and especially with this whole character interaction thing, uh, it came across to me actually in a very noticeable way. Now, usually, and you guys might notice this, but when I discuss games in this show, you know, at the beginning, I say the character's name once or twice, and then I just start saying you or me, because these characters are avatars on the screen, you know? So this isn't the case for George. Like, to me... George is a person. I may be controlling him. I may be telling him where to go, and I may be telling him what to pick up and who to talk to, but George is going to do that stuff in the way that George would do it, not the way I would do it. And I think that's part of the essence of adventure games that's missed if you don't really have a very strong and well-developed main character. Uh, you, as the player, are playing a role. But, you know, this isn't an RPG. You're not molding your character into an image of yourself or an image of some ideal that you have in your mind. You're playing the character as they are. You're playing a part in a play. You don't just know the script beforehand. Now, another aspect of this game's development that's essential is the graphics. Now, the team at Revolution knew they couldn't be all be, you know, the best at all aspects of designing and developing a game. So, as we already discussed... They went outside of the game industry for their music with, with Barrington Phelong. And so they also did that for the game's art. They went to Don Bluth Studios in Dublin to get uh, the game's backgrounds created. Now, Don Bluth is obviously well known now for, for Dragon's Lair, but 
the origins and the style of Dragon's Lair came from Bluth's time at Disney as an animator, and uh, it carried forward into his production company. So those backgrounds and the associated character art continue to stand as a reference for adventure gaming. I mean, this game, for 1996, for SVGA, for, you know, what by these days is low resolution, these games look like an animated feature film. Of course, the game released in 1996, and, uh, you know, after four years from inception to delivery, uh, it was an instant hit. The story, the detailed animation, the music, all of it were instantly hailed by critics as incredible. So this led to Broken Sword 2, The Smoking Mirror. Now, this game puts George and Nico on the trail of a mysterious Mayan stone, which takes them to Central America and then back over to London and other places and has them interacting with drug lords, CIA agents, missionaries, and more. A Broken Sword 2 was released in 1997 using many of the same methods and the same engine as the first game. The music was still done by Barrington Faylong, and again, the game released two great reviews. Maybe not as incredible as the first game, but still a really great groundbreaking game follow-up to, to a really great game, so everyone loved, uh, loved Broken Sword 2. Now, things changed up a little bit for Broken Sword 3, The Sleeping Dragon. So in this game, we find George and his friend Harry flying to Congo to meet a scientist. He claims he has found a source of unlimited energy. Uh, they arrive only to see the scientist gunned down. Of course, George must now unravel the mystery, and uh, at the same time, Nico is investigating the same situation. They're, they're not together anymore, but they soon meet up and resolve the situation, kind of, you know, getting the old team back together. Now, this game still had an interesting story, great writing, and uh, decent, if not better, voice acting than the first two games. However, the whole look and feel of the game changed. Cecil and his team decided to depart from the animated feature-style graphics of the first two games and move into 3D because, hey, it's the future. 3D is now. We need to put it in everything. Um... Also, you know, because of this 3D shift, there was no more mouse control. You controlled both George and Nico's movements via keyboard, joystick, or gamepad. Now, the game did review fairly well and sold relatively well. I think um, Charles Cecil said it sold a couple hundred thousand copies. But uh, many people, both reviewers and fans of the series, complained mightily about kind of the, the janky kind of Tomb Raider-ish controls and sleeping dragon came out in 2003 so like i said we're getting into 3d it was all the rage so they tried to figure out how to put it into adventure game and frankly i think still to this day people don't know how to make a 3d adventure game anyways 2006 saw broken sword the angel of death now this game was co-developed by revolution and a company called sumo digital so this is the first time they did like a co-developer type thing and i believe it was published by THQ instead of uh, Virgin Interactive. I think the, the third game was as well. But, well, uh, well, Cecil originally thought that the series would be a trilogy. According to him, the fan response was so strong for, for another sequel, for a fourth game, that they went ahead and they created one. So George now runs a small uh, bail bonds office in New York. A girl named Anna Maria comes to his office with an old manuscript that she'd like his help decoding, because apparently he's good at that now. Well, mobsters break in and steal it, and now the chase is on. So George has to deal with New York mobsters, fly to Istanbul, break into the, the Vatican, basically, uh, 
and he runs into Nico once more, and uh, eventually he's going to have to save her life from uh, being sacrificed in a horrible ritual. Now, again, the game reviewed fairly well, but not as well as the first two. Uh, the graphics were still 3D, but they kind of brought back some of the point-and-click interface, because in the third game, there was no point-and-click interface at all. You basically had to do like gamepad style to like choose inventory items, to talk to people. There was no clicking on anything. So here, partial point-and-click returned, though you still controlled George and Nico kind of their movements directly 3D style. Finally, just over a year ago, Broken Sword 5 released. Now, this was the result of a Kickstarter project launched by Revolution and, uh, you know, for a new Broken Sword game. I think they asked for $400,000. They made just under eight, and uh, it took the series back to its 2D animated roots. Uh, the game released in two episodes, and it reviewed pretty well, with many people saying the return to the original style was very welcome. There were some complaints that the game was a bit linear and the puzzles were a bit easy for experienced adventure game players. But uh, overall, aside from some janky puzzles, uh, you know, like I was talking about before, some moon logic, uh, the game was a great return to the, to the original. So what does the future hold for Broken Sword? Well, after the release of the latest game, I don't believe we've heard any rumblings of a Broken Sword 6, but I won't discount the possibility. And if anyone has, I, I might be wrong about that. Uh, please let me know. I'm sure some of you will. Uh, one thing I also do actually want to mention is a fan game called Broken Sword 2.5, which released, I believe, back in 2008. Now, this game covers the span of time between Broken Sword 2 and Broken Sword 3, because I think between 1 and 2, something like 6 weeks or 6 months pass. And then there's like a, there's a span of a few years of game time between uh, part two and part three. So this game kind of covers, uh, you know, what's going on there. I think the last update to it was in 2010. Uh, I, I haven't played it myself, but I read about it and I figured I'd throw it in here. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So where can we get Broken Sword today? Well... This one's available pretty much everywhere. You can definitely get them on Steam and on GOG. Now, the first game comes in a Director's Cut edition, which has some added content, it has enhanced graphics, and it's got some gameplay tweaks. Interesting thing, they didn't re-record the, uh, the dialogue, so it's still in kind of the crappy 8-bit, you know, low-res uh, sound quality because they had to fit it on a C on, I think that PC version was two CDs. And uh, the same for the second game, though I think that's called Broken Sword 2 Enhanced Edition or something like that. So you can get those versions of the first two games and the standard versions of uh, the follow-on games on both GOG and Steam. But if you get them on GOG, you also get a download of the original versions of the first two games. And this is really the only place, I think this and maybe one other website, where you can find legal copies of those original versions. Now, the director's cut of the original is nice for the updated graphics, but if you are a fan of the original, as I'm pretty sure we're about to hear from a few people, you may not care for some of the changes they made. Okay, as usual, before I get to my verdict, we've got some emails and... Very importantly, which makes me very happy, we have got some voicemails. But first, let's start with the emails. So we've got a message from Leaf, and he writes, Hi Joe, 
I have been listening to your show for a long time now, and I've contemplated writing in several contemplated writing in several times, but uh, never got around to it. When I heard that the upcoming episode was Broken Sword, I had to get on with the writing. I'm a huge fan of adventure games, and although I started out on the Amiga, and many of my fondest adventuring memories are from my Amiga years, my memories of Broken Sword on the PC are among the most vivid memories from my childhood, perhaps a little depressingly. I remember playing the second game first. It must have been 97 or 98, so the game would have been quite new. I was about 13 at the time when a friend of mine came over with a CD full of games, all pirated and all stripped of speech and video. I played about five minutes of the game and quickly realized that I had to buy this game as soon as possible. It deserved being played in all its glory. I had played both Beneath a Steel Sky and Lure of the Temptress on Amiga, and was surprised that I hadn't heard of Revolution's new game. The game proved to be easy to find. It was quite a big deal at the time, even though it had passed me by. So, once I had saved up the appropriate sum of money, I bought it. Now, I don't really remember much from when I was a kid, but a few gaming experiences stand out, and Broken Sword is one of them. The story is so wonderfully told, and the puzzles are so fun and logical, never even bordering on absurd, a hallmark of the genre, as a piece of game design, it really is in a league of its own. I remember never feeling stuck or frustrated playing this game, even though several of the puzzles required that I put the game away and sleep on it for a night or two. Christmas time is usually an adventure gaming holiday for me. It has become a tradition, really. I play through at least a couple of adventure games each Christmas. Broken Sword 1 and 2 has been among those games several times, and the games hold up extremely well. In fact, I don't think it's a matter of holding up. The graphics, music, and sound design is stellar. It is so well written and so brilliantly paced that uh, it's nearly impossible to put the game away. I actually think it's a matter of the rest of the genre catching up, and it hasn't. Now, there are other brilliant adventure games, and based on one's preferences, there are probably adventure games that one would enjoy more, but I don't think anyone would argue that Broken Sword is not a prime example of what the genre can be. A wonderfully realized interactive story with characters that remain with you for months and a mystery worthy of being unraveled. Leif, Oslo, Norway. Well, thank you, Leif, and those are really great memories and great thoughts, and, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely can't help but agree with you. When I loaded up the original version of the game, I mean, you know, we go back, this game is, you know, it's 2014, 2004, 1994, 1996, so, you know, 18 years old, these are almost 20-year-old games. And I loaded it up, and I was like, yep, this, this is a game, and it makes sense, and it doesn't look old. I mean, you know, there's some jaggies and stuff, but... The graphics don't look old. The music doesn't sound old. You know, some of the voices are a little scratchy because of the low, uh, the low uh, compression, or the high compression, I guess you would call it. But uh, you know, as a whole, I think it's, it's it looks pretty modern. All right. So next we have an email from Jenny. So she writes, "Hello, Joe, and to steal a phrase, fellow blockers." Thanks for all the hard work you put into the show so far. Long time listener, you have Akago to thank for that first-time writer. I marathoned most of your show while closing down and packing up the video game store I used to work for, which helped stave off the sadness of sudden unemployment by reminding me that my childhood was awesome. Nostalgia is a great coping mechanism. I've been wanting to write for a while, but I was waiting for a game that I knew well and had memories of playing during its initial release. But just my luck, you had a stream of shows that didn't quite fit the bill for me. But now you're doing Broken Sword. I have fond memories of playing the first two games with my neighbor. She and I played many an adventure game together back in the day. 
though she was the one who knew how to make boot disks and such. She had some sort of IBM computer, and I had an Apple II GS. I remember being impressed with the lush graphic styles and the clear love that went into the game's story and artwork. While I didn't know the specifics at the time, I was fascinated by the virtual theater engine Revolution used to make the game's NPCs come to life. I, like many gamers, had a completely justified anger towards goats for quite a while after playing Shadow of the Templars. Yes, I didn't mention that part, but uh, the goat sequence is uh, something to behold. She goes on. By the time the third game came out, I wasn't playing PC games much anymore, but I still did pick it up, and while the changing gameplay was a bit startling, I'm sure you'll talk about it, I still liked it well enough, though personally I think Sleeping Dragon's cover art was a blatant grab at the recently ended but still popular The X-Files. George looks particularly Duchovny-esque. For whatever reason, Angel of Death completely slipped under my radar at the time, but I did eventually play it. It hasn't left much of an impression on me, maybe it's due to the fact that it had two separate developers. Regardless, Broken Sword helped shape the kind of pop culture I enjoy today. I love anything regarding the secret or alternate hist- regarding secret or alternate histories, and throwing in a healthy dose of conspiracy theories is just icing on the cake. In retrospect, it may be why I took to Assassin's Creed as well as I did when that series premiered. I own just about every Broken Sword port out there, including the They Tried But It's Still Pretty Awful Game Boy Advance version, and when Revolution announced a Kickstarter for Broken Sword 5, I was there with bells on. I don't know if you'll cover the directest cuts, cuts, so I'll briefly say that the remastered ports of the first two games are pretty good if people would rather play that way. While I like the extra scenes with Nico and Shadow of the Templars, they generally fit in well with the storyline and flesh out her character, it's kind of alarming to switch back and forth between voice actresses. The woman they got isn't bad, but I wish they'd found someone who sounded more like the original Nico, though perhaps that's a fruitless witch, wish, as Nico changed voice actresses every game. Sorry to waffle on, please feel free to cut time if necessary. Nope, no cutting. And keep, uh, keep up the great work, and who knows, perhaps next time I'll subject your subscribers to my awful voice. Cheers, Jenny. P.S. I think it's criminal that you haven't covered Fate of Atlantis or Maniac Mansion slash Day of the Tentacle yet. Now's the time to do it with the revival announced. Uh, so thanks, Jenny. Again, great memories, great observations. You, you touched on some things that I didn't, which uh, which is why I love it when when you guys email in. As for Day of the Tentacle and Fate of Atlantis, Fate of Atlantis has been on the list quite a few times, and I keep moving it for other things. And uh, Maniac Mansion and Day of the Tentacle are, again, games I want to cover, but they're so important to me that I really want to do a good job. So I'm really trying to find a place where I've got a lot of time to go through, replay them, and do everything properly because... uh, even Fate of Atlantis, I mean, all the LucasArts adventures are very dear to me, So, uh, and I don't want to kind of burn them all up, but I will definitely get to those ones sooner rather than later. You're definitely going to see them in 2015. So next, we have the first of two voicemails. The first one is from Emmy Riot Akago. I believe that's how you, or M.A. Riot Akago. He's going to say how he says his name in the voicemail, so let's listen up. Hey, Joe. I'm Iwad Akago here again. I haven't sent any messages in a while for a couple of reasons, primarily because I didn't have a whole lot to say about the games that you've talked about as of late, but I've still been faithfully listening to every new episode. Mostly, however, I was busy finishing up a project of mine, trying to beat 100 games in my collection without obtaining any new ones. And I'm glad to report that after almost two years of playing, I finally finished it back on November 15th. It was quite a challenge, but I'm glad to finally be able to go back to getting some new games, and the ones that you've been talking about over the past two years are some that have definitely piqued my interest. Lately, I find myself growing dissatisfied with the comparatively simpler action and adventure games that I usually play. Don't get me wrong, there are a lot of great games in those genres around, 
but several of the ones I've played over the past few years tend to be a bit shallow or repetitive. So I've kind of started dabbling and branching out to deeper and more cerebral genres that I've never touched before. For example, I've actually grown quite fond of XCOM, despite never really playing any games like it. And your show is a great guide to finding other games that I would have never given a shot otherwise, as you always manage to present them in a detailed and compelling manner. Your last show on Silent Service especially, since I appreciate how you went into a lot of detail talking about the game and its background without getting too dry. But on the subject of your upcoming show, I've played the first two Broken Sword games only recently, and I really enjoyed them. Colorful graphics and animation, fun characters and good voice acting really made it feel like I was watching an animated movie. Plus, the puzzles are fun to figure out, and I never found myself having to check a walkthrough because something didn't make sense or anything like that. Though I must admit I did have a little help from having watched a couple of reviews online. Most of all though, I just love the overall globetrotting treasure hunt plot that the games are going for, with all the different locations and situations you find yourself in throughout. It's a shame that the series seems to have gone downhill since then, since I heard a lot of people complain about the third game and its plethora of box-shoving puzzles. And nobody ever really seems to mention the fourth game either. I haven't heard a whole lot about the recently released fifth game, but perhaps someday I'll give it a look if it seems interesting enough. But in the end, I just want to say that I still love this show, I want you to know you're doing a great job, so keep it up. And remember, happiness is an inside job. Love, I'm Yuri Akako. P.S. I have a blog over at akagos 100 gameothwordpresscom that's A-K-A-G-O-S 100 gameoath.wordpress.com, where you can read all about my gaming exploits for the past two years, plus any new games that I feel like talking about. See ya! Well, thank you, Akago, and, and yeah, you guys should go check out that blog. I uh, I pop into it every once in a while to uh, to see what there is to see. It's good writing, good insights, and and all that, and you know, thanks, thanks for the observations, and uh, yeah, you know, the the rumors about the third and fourth game aren't aren't necessarily untrue, but uh you know they do they I guess I'll I'll get to my uh I'll get to my verdict soon enough. But uh you know, don't discount them just cuz people say they ain't good. They they ain't good. They're not good. Uh you know, I like going to see, see things for myself. And hey, worst case they're not that expensive. You didn't lose that much time if if uh if you don't like them. And thanks for the comments on the Silent Service show. Um yeah, you know, it it's tough especially with these more technical games to uh to go into detail about how things work and why things work without making it boring, without making it be like a textbook or a history lesson. So, uh, thanks. I try. I aim to please. <laughs> Finally, we have a voicemail from Trolls, the Space Quest historian. As usual, a little caveat with Trolls. Uh, maybe a little sweary, so you may want to jump ahead a little bit if you don't like that. But uh, I love Trolls, so I'll let him say what he wants. <laughs> go ahead, Trolls. Thanks, Joe. Hi. I'm the Space Quest Historian, but I play other games as well, and one of these was Broken Sword. But that doesn't really mean much, does it? Because hey, who hasn't played Broken Sword? It's one of the most popular adventure games of the mid-90s. I remember playing the original DOS version and being awestruck, even before the game was even installed. Uh, back then, when you were installing a game, you had no choice but to just sit there and wait for it to finish, since this was before the days of blissful task swapping. But with Broken Sword, instead of just watching some dull progress bar filling up, Revolution Software had built in this sweet little game of Breakout that you can play while it was copying the files onto your hard drive. So this game was cool already before it even started. And once you got the game started, things didn't let up. It opens with this beautiful orchestral score by Barrington Falong, who also did the music for uh, 
um, Inspector Morse, but anyway, the, the score is pretty damn epic, and, and fuck it, this wasn't just some random dude who composed music by falling asleep on his MIDI keyboard, <clears throat> Orion Conspiracy, and the opening cutscene is short and spectacular and drops you right into the action when the cafe blows up, and then the actual game starts and it looks just as good as the opening cutscene, the character animations are amazingly fluid, the backgrounds are high resolution SVGA, and the dialogue... Oh man, dry wit doesn't even begin to cover it. It's hilarious, it's, it's downtrodden, it's, it's great. Um, so, okay, I, I know a couple of people have accused Broken Sword of being a bit slow. I mean, George just walks leisurely across the screen even when he's supposed to be in a hurry. Um, some of the voices are a bit weird as well. Um, the worst of which is Detective Russo, who sounds like he was told to read Shakespeare in a funny accent. Actually, I take that back. The absolute worst of the blot is, is your sidekick, the unnecessarily annoying reporter Nico, whose incredibly grating voice is only exacerbated by having lines that are so quintessentially British, even though she's supposed to be French, that she, she just gets on my fucking nerves. Seriously, her voice is like a million nails on a million chalkboards with a terribly fake French accent. Which is why it was also all the more disheartening <clears throat> when I purchased Broken Sword, the director's cut, for my Nintendo Wii, only to discover that the additional content that was added onto the game featured none other than that irritating French tart, in a lengthy introduction that would have been boring even without her presence, and a number of truly, deeply unnecessary motion control logic puzzles that served no other purpose than to annoy the piss out of me. Honestly, never have I seen a director's cut of anything so lame and so unnecessary in my life. Not to mention that all the spoken dialogue in the director's cut remains the low-fidelity 8-bit quality of the DOS version, except for the goddamn Nico opening. So thanks, thanks a lot for that. Honestly, I never even finished the director's cut version because I got stuck on one of these fantastically stupid motion control puzzles, uh, something about robbing a coffin to reveal biblical scripture or some shit I barely even remember anymore. And despite knowing what I was supposed to do, my wrist just started aching from wagging that stupid Wiimote around and eventually I just gave up, shut the game off and never looked back. But um, um, back to the original. you know. I've beaten that thing many times, and it's it's still great. I even fire it up to this day sometimes. The, the dialogue is funny, the story is genuinely enthralling, and the supporting cast is full of colorful and funny characters, except for one, and I think you know who I'm talking about. So, I was happy back then when Revolution put out a sequel so close to the, uh, to, to the original, so close to the first one, because shit, after traveling the world with George Stobart in the first one, I, I wanted to see more. And on the surface, I really shouldn't have been as disappointed as I was, because it looked just as good as the first one, it sounded just as good, there was still a bunch of traveling around the world and uncovering conspiracies and thwarting bad guys, but um, some of the writing felt a bit odd, um, it was very, very linear, and I honestly can't even remember the ending anymore, because every time I replay it, I find myself giving up somewhere around the middle section where George gets lost in the rainforest, I'm not sure why, it just, it just seems that, that around that part, it's where it dawns on me that my time could be better spent doing something else. Which I suppose is kind of a pity because, uh, you know, the flashing the Mayan contraption to make the door open Easter egg is pretty funny, and the Beneath the Steel Sky Easter egg in the subway is even more funny. Um, hey, look them up if you don't know what I'm talking about. But um, having two cool Easter eggs does not make a very linear and somewhat dull game any less than what it is. It's an ultimately unsatisfactory experience. 
So, okay, those were the first two games, and um, I knew they were working on a third game back in the day, but uh, someone mentioned 3D and action-adventure hybrid in the same sentence as its title, and that was enough to put me off ever paying for it. So uh, years, years later, I uh, borrowed a PlayStation 2 from a friend along with the game, and I actually played through what I assume was most of it. Uh, to this day, I'm not really sure why. I can't even remember ever being as pissed off with an adventure game as this one. It actually barely qualifies as an adventure game. Most of the game is spent pushing boxes around, and when you're not pushing boxes around, you're sneaking around guards in a number of really ridiculous and contrived sections that there's no way to skip. So finally I got to a sneak section that I couldn't get past and uh, threw in the towel. Uh, it probably didn't help that the disc was scratched and would only load half the time, but uh, to be honest, it was the piss-poor design of the game that did me in. Broken Sword 3 is fucking terrible. I've never played Broken Sword 4, I know that Revolution apparently listened to the criticisms of Broken Sword 3 and uh, caught back on the ridiculous box shoving and sneaking around and uh, even included an optional point-and-click interface, which is nice. Uh, but since I never finished Broken Sword 3, I wasn't about to start the sequel without knowing what happened at the end. And since it left such a damn sour taste in my mouth by being so unequivocally awful, I, I wasn't exactly bursting at the seams at the prospect of diving into the fourth one. So, um, you'll forgive me if I'm not flipping my shit over the kickstarted Broken Sword 5, even though it's a return to the classic 2D format of the first two Broken Sword games. Um, I've long since given up trying to follow the story, which ended abruptly for me halfway through Broken Sword 3, and I hope to piss off as many Broken Sword fans as possible by saying that it wasn't all that fucking exciting around that point anyway. At least, not enough to keep me interested. Hey, Broken Sword 1 was fantastic. The second was alright, I guess, but the series just lost its shit around that time, and whatever's coming out now is just tantamount to beating a dead horse. Repeatedly. So, maybe I'll give the sequels a whirl when I'm really bored uh, and decide to really find out what the hell happens at the end of Broken Sword 3, but I wouldn't count on it happening anytime soon. Not when there's so much other cool stuff coming out. This revival time of adventure games is really damn awesome. There's so much cool shit coming out, so I really couldn't give less of a crap about Broken Sword at this point. And I suppose the final straw, really, was picking up what I thought was a genuinely fantastic classic for my Nintendo Wii, uh, the director's cut, so that I could play it on my TV back when I didn't have a computer to hook up to my TV, and finding myself being kicked in the balls repeatedly by the atrocious crime against humanity that is Broken Sword, the director's cut. So that's my spiel about Broken Sword. The first game is fantastic. The rest of the series can go rotten hell for all I care. Back to you, Joe. Well, thank you, trolls. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of wonder if you hadn't played the Wii version of the director's cut, because I'm sure, like you said, they threw in some, hey, shake the controller puzzles and stuff just because there's motion control and blah, blah, blah. Like if you'd played the the PC version where, let's say that, you know, the the changes may have been a little bit less drastic if, if you might have enjoyed it a little bit more. I mean, I don't think it would have made you like Nico any more than you do. And frankly, I'm not sure why you, you dislike her. I didn't find her annoying, but... Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but I, I wonder if you'd tried that if uh, if that would have changed your your view of it a little bit. And as for the other games, I mean, you know, if you don't want to play them, you just want to get the story, you can always go and watch a watch a let's play on YouTube, and uh, 
you know, just get the story and then jump straight to Broken Sword 5 if uh, if you want to give that a whirl. But yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for, for, for all the memories and all the opinions and all the details. Love it when you, when you, when you send these things in. Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. So, does Broken Sword? hold up today well absolutely i mean the first two games are absolute masterpieces and despite what trolls just said i still think that the second game is just as good as the first i played the original version of the first game and like i already said the graphics and the music they absolutely hold up i mean there's an attention to detail in the art and animation that most games today just don't have i mean the characters the backgrounds the writing, the way the story unfolds, they're all wonderful. Now, two small downsides that uh, are, are that, as I've sort of mentioned, some of the voice actors are downright god-awful. I mean, the police officers are probably the worst offenders, but there's like a Scottish or, sorry, an Irish guy that's that's just an American guy talking in an Irish accent. And, uh, you know, so it, it does take you out a little bit. So that and the music volume issue that I talked about in the tech focus are really the only two problems that I can bring up. And to me, they're, they're really minor. I mean, I like George's voice. I think the uh, actor that plays him, whose name I can't remember, who I probably should have mentioned, but you know, you can look it up if you're interested. Uh, his voice, his intonation, his delivery are, are very, very good, very interesting. He really gives George a personality. And uh, unlike Trolls, I don't have an issue with Nico's voice either. So, you know, for me, the main two people are enjoyable to listen to. So the fact that there's some other actors that are not very good doesn't really bother me. As for the other games in this series, if you enjoy the story from the first two, well, you could give the others a go. Fine. You know, if you don't like Tomb Raider-y box pushing controls and stuff, like I said, you can go watch those ones on uh, on YouTube. If you do want to play them, they review as good games in their own right. Uh, they're just not as good as the first two, especially if you're a fan of pure point-and-click adventures. And if you do get through those ones, go play Broken Sword 5. I don't even know if you need to know the story from 3 and 4 to play 5. It may help, but I'm pretty sure you could probably play it without them. So, um, yeah, try them out. 1 and 2, absolutely. 3 and 4, eh, if you feel like it. And then if you really want to, go check out 5. It's modern, all that, so... And it goes back to uh, to the roots of the genre. So give those first two games a try. Absolutely. So before we get to the end, I just got an email uh, earlier today from Jenny. And uh, she says that she would like to provide a listener with a copy of, uh, of, uh, of the first Broken Sword. I believe it'll probably be the director's cut. But... Uh, We'll let you know more details and stuff. But basically, you want a free copy of Broken Sword? As always, you know, with these giveaways, just send an email to podcast at umbcast.com with the uh, with the title or the subject line, if you will, Broken Sword Giveaway. I'll give it uh, probably till January because it's the holidays. People are busy. Maybe, you know, the first week or the first show out in January, I'll do a uh, 
I'll do a draw there, and we will choose someone to for Jenny to send that uh, that copy of Broken Sword to. Thanks, Jenny. That's really great. And if you guys do have any other games you want to give away or anything via the show, uh, you can you can drop me a line, and I will uh, I will work something out with you. So that's it. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening and contributing, as you always do. Uh, so for the next episode, which I hope to get out next weekend, uh, I'm going to do the December News Roundup show. And uh, for the next full episode, which we'll probably see around New Year's or, you know, first week of January, that kind of thing, I will be discussing the 1996 Rogue Entertainment RPG slash FPS Strife. So as always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thank you to Rick Moyer for all his great audio work. You can find him over at rickmoyer.com or moyermultimedia.com. Don't forget that if you enjoy this show, you can become my boss over at patreon.com slash umbcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash umbcast. Now, if you find some value from the show, please consider joining all my current patrons and donating a buck or two for show to help me with the costs and to hit the next goal of, I believe it is uh, monthly giveaways. So, you know, Jenny prompted me to do a giveaway this month, but uh, if we hit $100 a show, every month I'm going to give away a game or I'm going to give away some swag or, you know, some other stuff. Like, who knows? I mean, I'm going to give something away every month. So you can check out the show notes for this show at umbcast.com and all the other shows. Uh, You can join the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash UMB show because some other guy's got UMB cast. I should probably ask him for it, but who knows? Uh, you can follow me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Uh, you can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash UMB cast where I put up videos on my game research sessions and other things that I feel like putting up. Uh, you can subscribe to me on iTunes or stream the show live at Stitcher Radio. You can leave reviews there. I love reviews fire them off. The more stars, the better. So that's that. Happy holidays to all. If I don't see you before the end of the year, happy new year. And we will see you next time for Strife here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here? Join.